Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone out there who's listening, I hope they're doing fantastic as well. What we got coming up, two-parter. We did a live show with some, I guess what they're not new friends anymore. These are like old friends of ours. We've been through a lot with these folks. And Tim, you and I have been through a lot. And I want to know how you're doing. I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for asking. And yes, so this was recorded a couple weeks ago. This was a live show that we did with Jennifer Amell of Dark Valley and Jane Borowski of Invisible Tears and Dark Valley. And if you're unfamiliar with Jane Borowski, she is an attack victim. She was attacked by a serial killer and survived. As you said, this is a two-parter, so this is part one. And I think you really like the conversation. Yeah, we do cover a lot. We cover some behind the scenes with the production of Dark Valley. We covered... Obviously, you just mentioned Invisible Tears, Jane's show, and Jane had the opportunity to answer some questions from the folks who were watching and contributing on YouTube. So there's some Q&A that's sprinkled in through there, and we're really excited to present it to our listeners here. And Tim... If people wanted to hear this, let's say without any ads, where would they go? Well, folks can now subscribe to Crawlspace Premium on Apple Podcasts. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and get the same product there. It's actually bundled with Missing, which is one of the other podcasts that we host, Lance. And it's bundled with Dark Valley, which we'll talk all about in this conversation. And Tim, we have a very important date coming up for folks listening to the part one and part two of this, you still have enough time to check out this march that's being organized Tuesday, August 15th, Concord, New Hampshire by Jane Borowski, Julie Murray, and other advocates. That's right. Yeah. This group is calling themselves New Hampshire Unsolved Coalition. And you can find out more information on the Invisible Tears podcast. They released an episode called Let's Rally. I think that's a good place to get all of the information. All right, we're going to break real quick here, and we'll be right back with Jane Borowski and Jennifer Amell. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to Dark Valley Live. It is June 22nd, 2023, and I am Tim here tonight with some very special guests. I'm here with Lance as always. What's up, Lance? I can't be more excited for this evening because of the two amazing people who are joining us. So I don't even want to waste any more time. I want to move right into our other guests right now. And I just want to quickly say to thank you to everybody who's tuning in right now. And, uh, you know, if you're not tuning in, then you're missing out. So get off your butts. <laughs> okay, well, we are here with Jane Borowski and Jennifer Amell, two very special people, two people who are integral to the new podcast, Dark Valley. How are you both doing tonight, Jane and Jennifer? I'm doing great. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes. Good evening, everybody. This is exciting. <laughs> They all love you. They all love you. But watch, when we tell them to stop, they'll stop. Stop. <laughs> Just like that. All at once, they'll stop. It's been quite a amazing past couple of years and change, but in the past few weeks, it's been the release of Dark Valley, everything leading up to that, and now we're finally here. We've been planning this virtual live event for a while, and we had all of these things in place, and we were like, how can we make sure that Dark Valley hits and it hits big so that Jane's story is told and as many people hear it in one hit as possible. And this was part of it. 
And it kind of feels weird. Doesn't it feel weird to be in this place right now and see all of these things fall in place? Because right now we're number 28 overall in podcasts on Apple, which is bonkers. Yeah, totally bonkers. I think we use the word surreal. I've just moved right into bonkers. Yeah, like a dream, weird dream. And that's in the U.S. charts. We just got to specify because, you know, I know the world does revolve around America, but, uh, you know, that's (laughs) not every single chart in the land. Did I say in the world? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> In the universe. <laughs> well, perhaps I was a bit hyperbolic. And that's only two episodes out. Yeah. That, that's, yeah that's a good the point. crazy part about it. Yes. There will be an episode released tomorrow or uh, even at 3 a.m., I believe, Eastern time. And that's midnight Pacific. So you can hear episode three very soon. And yeah, we're very excited about all this. Okay, so let's start talking about this show. Jane, I want to ask you something real quick because Dark Valley was a participant of the Tribeca Film Festival last week. What did you think of that? When you heard about that, you probably saw we were there uh, representing this. How did that feel? Oh, it felt awesome. I mean, to be able to get our story out like that, you know, I've been on this journey with Jen for what, two years, and um, it's been incredible. And to see it all become reality, it's just amazing. Yeah, I was super excited for her and Dark Valley. I was really excited. I don't know what to uh, what to say that's going to be too much insider information, but taking it all the way back to when we first started talking about Dark Valley and the Connecticut River Valley murders and resourcing different pieces of information that were out there and trying to figure out how we were going to pull it together and thinking to ourselves, well, we need Jane. First and foremost, there's no way this story is told without Jane. And it felt so impossible. I don't know why in the beginning it felt so impossible. I think in our heads, everything was going to be an obstacle. We're so fortunate to connect with you and start this relationship. You just, for whatever reason, put your trust in us. And then it moved into Jen taking the reins on the actual production and hosting and researching and investigating, even though she was like adamant about not doing anything in front of the microphone. This is her role is supposed to be all, you know, behind the scenes, but she took over that role because that was just naturally how it was supposed to go. What was it like in the beginning, Jane, when you first were like connected with us and you heard about the project because people have talked to you about it before and please be brutally honest like say tell us you didn't trust us at first or whatever but what was it that you know made you say like these are the people that I'm going to move forward with I really never really was approached about a project at this level or at this scale and I didn't want the project to be just about me I wanted it to be about all the victims I wanted it to be able to give the other woman a voice. And Jen and you guys gave me the impression that that's what you guys wanted to do too. You wanted to tell the whole story, but yet you wanted to tell their story along with mine. And that was really important to me. It was kind of weird because I was just starting my podcast at the same time that you guys had contacted me. But with talking to Jen and seeing the direction she really wanted to go with this the second time, (laughs) I knew that I really wanted to work with her and I wanted to work with you guys. And it's been great. I mean, Jen has gone above and beyond what I ever expected her to do. And the communication, I think the communication between me and Jen has been amazing. One of the things that made me trust her, helped me to trust her, was her communicating everything with me that she wanted to put on Dark Valley. And you all have always made sure that I was okay. 
I've done a couple of other small shows, but with you guys, you guys always made sure I was okay. I was okay to do certain interviews. I was okay to talk about certain things. And I never really met people that wanted to make sure that I was okay. So you guys just very quickly earned my trust. Oh, Jane, thank you so much. I remember the moment. So like we were thinking about doing this story and didn't really know how to approach it because it's like such an epic. There's so many cases to dive into and like every single case you could do a whole show about basically. So like initially we were, you know, like thinking about it like a procedural, like we'll, we'll go chronologically this case, this case, this case, and finally we'll get to Jane who survived and that's an incredible story. And then I can't remember exactly the day it happened but some kind of brainwave happened with me i was like oh but jane's the heart of this jane's the center of this story so i think i called you jane i was like here's what i'm thinking (laughs) i'm gonna make you a star (laughs) (laughs) but it's true and i think that was an important intuition because your mission all along has been to speak for these other women exactly you're using your position as the only survivor to tell their stories. And that's so important. Yeah, I wanted to be their voice uh, because obviously they don't have a voice. And that was super important. And I wanted to get to know these women. And I wanted people to get to know these women because they were living lies before they were so brutally taken. Because of you, you um, have given me the opportunity to do that. And I'm grateful for that. I am. Well, this is just one big love fest, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, we're going to stop being all this sappy stuff, all right? (laughs) Oh, no, we can totally keep going sappy. I mean, that's a nice change of pace. I want to make sure that we recognize uh, Amanda here, who just joined the YouTube channel. Amanda is very closely connected to you, Jane. Her and her husband, Drew, have also been really instrumental in just the overall relationship. While you don't hear about Amanda and Drew in every single episode of Dark Valley or when we talk about things in relation to you and your attack in Dark Valley, they're there in the background all the time. Like they're everything that's happened, they've had some sort of say in or they've weighed in and it's been very valuable. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the two of them. Yeah, not to mention their co-hosts of Jane's on Invisible Tears. Exactly. Right. Big shout out to Amanda and Drew. And you all did an episode about the first two episodes of Dark Valley. Um, um, that was great. It was great insight hearing you all speak about what it's like to hear Dark Valley. So any listeners out there who want a little bit more, um, check out Invisible Tears. And uh, it's a different show. Jane, can you tell us uh, the differences um, between the shows? Invisible Tears is, um, I call it a variety show because we talk about some cases, old cases. They're all unsolved. We talk about PTSD, mental health, and uh about my life after my attack. I get real candid and open about what I went through after my attack. I don't hide anything. I'm very transparent on Invisible Tears. And uh, Amanda's uh, my co-host, Andrew. And um, we do talk a lot about mental health and uh, PTSD. It is my way of giving victims, again, a voice. And I feel like that's what I've been doing also. We get a lot of responses from people saying, I've had PTSD for years and I've never felt so heard. And my mission was if I could help that one person who's suffering 
from some kind of mental illness or PTSD because of trauma, then um, that's the whole reason why I was doing the podcast. And I've gotten several (laughs) people have said, you know, have written to me, I know I've had PTSD for 15 years and uh, have never seen counseling and I'm seeking counseling for the first time. I'm going to start my healing journey. And that's what I wanted to do, help people. Well, that is great. So awesome. Thanks. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. When we had been talking about this in the early stages of Dark Valley, which was aligning with the early stages of Invisible Tears, we had talked about, like, what's the difference between the two shows? Are we going to end up crossing over, crossing lanes at some point? And is that going to be confusing? And it's really, not only has it not been confusing, it's been such a great compliment to each other. One is a great compliment to the other. And I can't think of any other podcast that has that connection where it's a intense submersive telling of stories from the victims and their families and the survivor in a way that is done so that answers can come for each one of these individual cases with Dark Valley, but then you get the emotional toll and how you deal with that with Invisible Tears. It's amazing. It's like this great marriage between the two shows and there's nothing confusing about it. You know, you want to hear the stories about the other victims? How did this all happen? What? Where did they come from in life? It's Dark Valley, but if you've ever suffered, like that's Invisible Tears and it's so good. Since Dark Valley has launched, we listened to it, me, Drew, and Amanda, and then we do a response episode, a reaction episode to each episode that's launched. So we've been also doing that once a week. So that's been pretty awesome. That's really cool. I think people who go to Invisible Tears from Dark Valley will want that like behind the scenes. Like They'll want your thoughts about it. Not necessarily behind the scenes per se. But it's like, I think in the back of my mind, as I was making each episode of Dark Valley, I always ask the question, well, how would Jane react to this? Would I offend her? Would she be disappointed? Would she be happy about it? Would she find it interesting? It's cool for me to like listen to it after the fact. There's one thing that it just blows my mind that Tim and I have been doing true crime podcasting for years, like since we were like seven years old and we're 58 now. (laughs) So we've been doing it for almost half a century. And I've never really, really understood what it meant, even though we tried really hard to, quote, tell the stories of victims through their family members and through people that knew them. I knew that that was important, but I didn't really understand like how that could click investigation or have an influence on an investigation until listening to Dark Valley and hearing your story, Jane, and then hearing how you're trying to figure out these young women's lives. Like, where do they come from? What circumstances? Why were they treated like this in the public, in the press? Why their murders were handled the way they were handled? And by telling that and telling, like, where they came from, it clicked in my head the way it's never clicked before. Like, it's important to figure out why Eva Morse comes from or where she was coming from. It's super important to know how the press treated her why her case wasn't covered the way it was and i think just beyond it being a survivor story telling these stories it goes deeper than just like hearing someone say we're telling these stories you know we're speaking for the victims the purpose is because you need to know where these victims come from did you feel that as you were doing it like you wanted to speak for them but did it kind of click for you or did you have a moment where you saw like some movement could be made in their investigations because you're telling their stories hoping (laughs) when you read in the paper about each one of their cases you only read what happened to them 
You never read about who they were. And Jen has done an amazing job with contacting family members and really getting to know who these women were, what they were doing the day that, you know, they disappeared. And I think that is really important. It's not just about what happened to them physically. It's about how are they living their lives? And, you know, you're perfectly right. Eva's story was covered way less than the others. And I think her investigation was covered way less than the others because of her lifestyle. And it needs to change. Every case should be investigated equally. It should have the same amount of attention than the next or the next or the next. And unfortunately, it's not. And it should be changed. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I think it's interesting, Lance, that every time you talk about like these victims' lives, you bring up Eva. It's interesting because like I too felt like most personally moved by Eva's story. And I don't know if this is true for you, Jane. I don't know if you like gravitate or feel connected to like one woman over another. But Eva just to breaks my heart. She was like a single mother. She fought to keep her daughter. Uh, she didn't have uh, a partner. Uh, she identified as bisexual. She's working kind of a dead end job in a factory and just like kind of unhappy with the trajectory of her life. But she got up every morning. She went to work every morning. She went got there on time, even though she didn't have a car. You know, she made sure her daughter had new clothes for school. She bought her a bicycle for Christmas and saved up for a whole year to do it. And there's something about that day to day struggle of Eva's that, I don't know, I, I connected with on like a very human level. And then not to mention the fact that like after she did disappear, such atrocious things were written about her in the newspaper. The goddamn, excuse my language, chief of police spoke about her so horribly. And that's really stuck in my mind. So they looked at her sexuality as something that contributed to her death. Basically, they were like, oh, she was consorting with these seedy individuals and gay bars and stuff. And that's that must be what happened. It must have been, the, you know, an aggrieved uh, boyfriend of one of the women she was dating uh, who, who killed her, which I don't think is true. Can't say definitively, but I just don't think that that should be the focus of that investigation. But I guess what I'm wondering, Jane, is there a particular woman that you've learned about and you're like, oh, man, we would have been friends? Oh, gosh. I'd have to say um, probably Barbara Agnew. I can see that. Why is that? Because she was mom. She was a nurse. She had a career. But she she wasn't afraid to go and do things by herself, like going skiing, traveling all that ways to go skiing, stopping at the rest area at night in the middle of a snowstorm, you know, thinking that she was safe, kind of that carefree lifestyle where she was doing what she was doing and and didn't think about um, there was any danger or anything. Uh, I guess the best way I can explain it. Another one that bothered me was Bernice Cornemage. They very quickly labeled her as a runaway. Right. And I think that was because of um, her home life um, with her parents. And I think that bothered me the most. And she was a minor. Yeah. I mean, do you want to talk about our experience visiting her grave? Now we're talking, what, 37, 38 years now. We go to Bernice's grave and all that was there was this little tiny plastic marker that had her name on it. There was nothing else. There was no stone. There was no, there wasn't anything. 
I was pissed off because here she was. She was only 17. She was murdered. This was a small community. And in no way am I judging her family or her parents. We've heard that they struggled financially. But a community so small with virtually no crime, except when these murders started, they couldn't band together to buy this girl a stone when she passed away as a community. And even after 35, over 35 years, just bothered me so much. I was pissed. I was sad. I went there to pay my respects. And then I just, I, I gained all these other emotions. Um, I was upset. I was tearful. I was sad. I was angry. It was so much. I think you hit the nail on the head, Jane. I mean, a stone is a stone, you know, a marker is a marker, but it is a sign of respect. And at this point, it's a sign of people remembering what happened to her, that the community uh, is forgetting that this happened. Exactly. You nailed it. Yep. So can we get her a stone? I've talked about it a couple of times, I think, on my podcast. And, um, and we've had people messaging where can we donate? How can we help? Let's get Bernice a stone. So it's like we got to get something together where we can um, find some place for people to send donations that really want to help get her a stone. Because we've, we've had quite a few um, people reaching out to us. That's great. Yeah, we should organize that, like a GoFundMe or something. How does that make you feel, Jane, after being at her gravesite and seeing the the small stone um getting angry but being able to sort of speak for her and to potentially raise money to help that problem get get her a bigger stone something that is more respectful to her i feel excited about it i mean this is going to be a way of um remembering her maybe people that have forgotten about her are going to say oh i remember her i remember this and um you know, I don't want her to be forgotten. I don't want any of them to be forgotten. And I think over the years, they have been forgotten. Like the younger generation have never heard of the Connecticut River Valley cases because they've been forgotten. It's not in the news anymore. And they're cold cases, even though they're still unsolved cases. So um, between, you know, Jen and I and you guys, being able to bring life back to these cases and let people know that these are still unsolved and, you know, let's not forget about them is, um, you know, it's really important. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. I think we should probably mention the other victims. So one of the first ones we touched on was uh, Kathy Milliken. She was murdered in 1978 uh, in a town called New London in New Hampshire. And then we have Mary Elizabeth Critchley. Uh, she's known as Betsy by her friends and family. I think that was 1981. She was hitchhiking and uh, her body was found just outside of Claremont, New Hampshire. And then... A couple of years went by, and I think 1984 is when Bernice Cordemanche uh, was also hitchhiking. She was abducted. Um, and then like a month, maybe a little over a month later, Ellen Freed uh, was talking on a payphone in the center of town, and she was abducted. And both of those women's bodies uh, were found out in an area called Kellyville, uh, which is kind of between Claremont, New Hampshire, and Newport. Right, Jane? 
That's right. Yeah. And then after that, we have Eva Morse, uh, who was also hitchhiking uh, away from work. And she was abducted, I guess, along Route 12. And her body was also found in Unity, very close to where Betsy Critchley had been found, like under 500 yards, um, just four years later, weirdly. And then after Eva, we have Linda Moore over the river in Vermont. And that case is confusing to me. I still don't really know what I believe. <laughs> I'm sure you can get into it, Jane. Um, but she was killed in her home. So, I mean, she was found by her husband like very shortly after the murder occurred. And then after Linda, we have Barbara Agnew, who was also in Vermont. She was traveling up Interstate 91, going north toward home after a ski trip. She pulled into a rest stop about 10 miles from home for some reason, and a brutal fight ensued there. And she was taken from her car, and her body was found in the spring, I believe. Not too, too far away, um, up in Heartland, right? Yeah. On a very rural dirt road. And then after Barbara is Jane, who survived and is here. So that's the the long and short of it. It feels kind of horrible to just like list them off. But well, I figured if we're speaking about, um, you know, a couple of them specifically, we might as well at least uh, mention everybody's name. And they're all covered in Dark Valley. Essentially, each episode focuses, with the exception here and there, on one of those victims. It unplays in real time for the most part for you and Jane. And in the background, we've all experienced the things that have happened because of the work that has been done in looking into the past and into the lives of these individuals, which gives us some twists and turns. And that's just what happens, right? Definitely wasn't put together so that we could end episodes with these hooks that'll make people listen to the next one. But that's just literally what happened. I mean, Jen, Tim and I were having conversations and Jen would say, here's where we're at, you know, thus far with this one. And this is what happened after. And she would tell us and we're like, that's how that episode has to end. And that's how this season has to end because that's where it's at. And it's uh, just remarkable how it came together. Did it feel like to, to the two of you that this was just there waiting to be told? For Jane, I'm sure. Yeah. I feel like this has been on your plate, Lance, for far longer than mine or Tim's. I mean, just because I grew up in that area. It wasn't my main dish plate. It was on like the side dish. Well, with Maura Murray, we've looked into Maura Murray's case for so many years. You can't look into that case and not bump into these cases online. The thing that stood out to me was that nothing made sense online. There was no like one spot you could go to actually like read a story or make sense of all these uh, murders and all these losses. I'm so glad that we're the people to tell this story finally. I've gone online so many times trying to look up these women and see if there's anything about them, about their lives, how they were living and try to find anything new. And it wasn't until we went to the library. That was huge. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Go for it. We decided to go to the library in Claremont to look up some newspapers. And um, we were talking to this gentleman, asked him, you know, we wanted to look up these older newspapers. And Jen pretty much told him, you know, what we were doing, why we were there. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, I got something for you, but I got to go down cellar. And I'm thinking, down cellar, what the heck is down cellar? And he come up with this 
I call it the Holy Grail of Connecticut River Valley murders. It was this big black notebook with paper articles. And every single bit of it was about every single thing that was ever covered in the area about the Connecticut River Valley cases. It was a wow moment. It was so unexpected. Yeah, seriously. I think we both looked at each other like wild-eyed. We're like, oh. <laughs> and whoever put that book together, was, it was amazing. He had it all in order of date and had everything marked. And it was all the copies of every, I think just about every single paper clipping there was on the cases. Right from... When the women went missing to when they were found, it was crazy. You didn't find any of that stuff online. It was all in that magic black book. That is amazing work because that is, uh, you know, saving so many older articles. Like that is an important binder. This history in that binder. It took them a long time to do it. It wasn't just done in like a day or two. They spent some time on it. I have a feeling whoever did it cared was a member of the community that wanted to put something together for them. It was an amazing book. Yeah. As I recall, the person's name who put it together was Ron Cody or Cote, C-O-T-E. So there's like probably 20-something Ron Cody's on Facebook. <laughs> I messaged all of them and didn't find our Ron Cody, unfortunately, but I just want to like shake that guy's hand. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is very cool. That's great. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, thank you. Saved us a lot of work. <laughs> uh -huh. I'll say. So we have some folks in the uh, YouTube chat that are going to be asking questions as we continue this conversation. And Susan just asked if you're able to feel safe after such a horrendous trauma. For a long time after my attack, I, I did not feel safe. But I've done a lot of counseling, a lot of healing. And I mean, 35 years have gone by. I'm a badass now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's about 70. So <laughs> um, I, I do feel safe now. If I didn't, I wouldn't be like having my face out there and stuff. I feel like after 35 years, if he really wanted to come back and attack me again, he would have done it way before now. Do you think he's still alive? I don't know. Sometimes I think he is. Sometimes I'm like, maybe he's not. Maybe that's why the attack stopped. Who knows? 